0: Raise your hand if you're ready for 30 minutes filled with success stories and hope. Today I talked to Dr. Liz Hillard with the Wildlands Network about the Pigeon River Gorge I-40 corridor. You'll learn how groups like Wildlands are teaming up with state and federal departments of transportation to redesign bridges and other barriers to accommodate wildlife based on extensive data collected on wildlife movements and impediments over the years. So stay tuned. Relief from today's depressing headlines is on the way. The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Dr. Liz Hillard is a senior wildlife biologist for Wildlands Network and helped lead and manage the study design, implementation, analysis, and report writing for road ecology research focused on the important Pigeon River Gorge Interstate 40 corridor near Great Smoky Mountain National Park in North Carolina and Tennessee. She also works to build partnerships and engage the public in wildlife habitat connectivity and conservation efforts throughout the southern and central Appalachian region. Liz currently serves on the board and as the secretary for North Carolina chapter of the Wildlife Society.
1: We all know and we've been hearing because it is out in the news now the detrimental effects of roads on wildlife. And while you know tens of millions of birds, reptiles, amphibians and mammals are killed per year on roads in the United States, this wildlife mortality from roads or what we call roadkill is just one part of, of the issue. So roads cause habitat fragmentation and can hinder the movement behavior of wildlife, such as dispersal and migration, and more generally disrupt wildlife movement and access to resources such as food and mates. So disrupting key ecological processes that are important for survival. And so now we have all of this information and for the last 20, 30 years, folks have really been working on solutions. And those solutions, as far as the impacts of roads go, have been creating wildlife over and under past structures. In the last five to 10 years, so many of these projects we see mostly happening out west, starting to happen here in the east. But examples of, of true successes, not only funneling animals to potential crossings with fencing, but excluding the wildlife from the roadway. And so this is important, you know, to reduce wildlife vehicle mortality, but also there's human safety issue involved here with our larger mammals. So we see the DOTs and wildlife agencies and groups like ours, non-for-profit organizations that do research and science, you know, all coming together to try to reduce uh, vehicle collisions for wildlife, but also increase human safety on the roadways as we're understanding this issue. And so, for example, in Wyoming around 2015, we hear about them putting in six wildlife underpasses and two wildlife overpasses in a critical migration area, and that increased wildlife connectivity, reducing pronghorn vehicle collisions by 100 percent and mule deer vehicle collisions by 78 percent. So we're just seeing by collecting the information before and after, we're seeing these being implemented and, and big successes. One of my favorites, uh examples is just in the last couple of years on Interstate 64 in Virginia, researchers found that incorporating uh, a mile of eight foot fencing at two road structures that are already there, a box culvert and a river bridge, not specific for wildlife, By fencing and funneling animals to those and fencing them off the roadway, it reduced white-tailed deer collisions by 96% and 88% at these two structures. And so, so we're just seeing these big numbers and through time, you know just a lot of positives that putting these structures on the landscape in the correct places are really successful for for the connectivity aspect. So it's an exciting time and you know, folks are seeing these projects out there. And so there's a lot of support and interest.
0: Is that why maybe or one of the reasons why we're seeing more and more of these projects? Because that data on white tailed deer collisions is a very just plain human safety issue. It just seems like highway departments and states uh, and federal money would flow towards statistics like that um, without having to get into the weeds about all the great benefits. Uh, You don't have to sell them on all of the other things. If that one economic and human safety issue is a driving factor behind money for these projects, or am I reading that right?
1: No, I, I, it, it is us knowing more. And, and what it comes down to too is, the economic cost of these vehicle collisions. There's been numbers crunched on how much it costs, you know, statewide, looking at insurance costs, injuries to human life, and, and that's a huge figure as well. So I think it's an intersection of, yeah, a lot of times the policy or the funding that goes into these is is maybe less focused on the the connectivity ecological aspect, but really on the human. Safety portion and economic cost, and so we're taking this opportunity to to reconnect. While while these there's kind of some synergy out there for for multiple partnerships.
0: Well, that's about all of the administrative talk that my audience can tolerate. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to move on to the really mm-hmm. fun stuff, like connectivity stories. What kinds of things have you seen that really give you hope? Uh, once things are in place and wildlife start using these crossings.
1: I'm excited when these projects, we see that they're planned for a specific wildlife, usually a large charismatic species, important usually for migration. They have these large home ranges, so they need a lot of resources. Habitat connectivity is important. But what I really like to see is when these go in and they actually help some of these smaller species where the roadways are true barriers, and so we see a connectivity of diverse, a diversity from you know, our smaller, lesser knowns, but true connectivity and ability for populations on both sides of, of major roadways to interact, disperse their genetics, you know, really restore from being fragmented isolated populations. So I like seeing the diversity of wildlife using these structures when they've just been pinpointed for maybe a white-tailed deer or a mule deer.
0: Yeah, the camera stuff is fascinating. I'm sure many of our listeners have uh, <laughs> tuned into uh, a lot of those uh, wildlife cams. And it really is exciting. And I, you can feel the excitement um, from people who are studying certain species or, you know, just general wildlife movements um, in recently reconnected areas, not just, just over or underpasses, but just connectivity in general and the delight in their in their voices, is it's palpable. It's like, wow, look at that. Nobody would have expected. I think it was a wildlife crossing where we discovered the coyote and the badger working together. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I'm sure yes, you are.
1: Yes. The safe passages folks. Yes. What, what a gem. And we've had some of those too. Um, I didn't want to jump the gun with the pigeon river gorge project, but I think my favorite crossing we saw there was um an elevated metal culvert, right? We're in a steep, gorgy mountainous terrain. And a lot of times the flow water under the interstate, it's a large metal pipe. And you know sometimes these are bedded on the ground where animals could get in them, but this part of the culvert that we're focused on with a camera, we have both the entrance and exit. Uh, we see a female bobcat jump into the, the culvert and she you see her flag her tail. As a and she is flagging her tail for her young kitten to come up. And her young kitten scrambles up there and they pass safely under the interstate using a metal culvert to move water. it's It's exciting. And I mean, to add anecdotally, a project that uh, I got to work on this summer, and we're just in the process of of trying to finish up the project. We have a couple more months of monitoring. I have been so excited because we got an opportunity in gorgeous state park here in North Carolina. They put a couple small culverts under a road that they were building for a visitor center and they were built for timber rattlesnakes in the area. Uh, Important research in the area. Connectivity is important for basking sites to natal dens. And and this is just a hotspot for those animals. And they just about 15 years ago, put in three, I would say two by two foot concrete culverts under a a not very used roadway. And I got the opportunity to monitor those this summer and warn my summer technician that I thought this could be really boring (laughs) as we're just doing time-lapse photos and motion imagery. But we detected almost 20 different species of wildlife using these from bobcats and red fox and gray fox to uh, wood rats and bats. And, uh, and snakes, uh, a diversity of snakes. So in, in general, and those have been out there for a while, it's just seemed really successful creating these paths of re- least resistance uh, that provide some cover for wildlife to cross these roadways, no matter how big or small. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support.
0: So the Pigeon River Gorge Project, let's, let's talk about that. Give us an overview of what that is. I mean, this isn't just a wildlife crossing. It's a bunch of things. I mean, and culverts that even bats use. That's crazy. I had never heard that before.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think they might have been feeding in there on all of the the, the insects in there. But um so I think that's some of the bat the bat use of that structure. But an, an important thing to mention when we talk about wildlife over and underpasses being placed on the landscape is road ecology research. So understanding wildlife along the roadway, their patterns and processes. That's road ecology research, and it is necessary to identify, you know, the placement of these wildlife structures along a given stretch of highway. And so that's really the introduction to the Pigeon River Gorge project. Multiple agencies and non-for-profits came together and started talking in 2017 and 2018 about how this section of Interstate 40 that kind of runs along Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And then we have important national forest lands to the Northeast. We're having a lot of bear mortality in the area and our group Wildlands Network with National Parks Conservation Association, the National Park Service and the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission all got together and started discussing, got funding and decided we wanna really focus some research to identify where these wildlife activity hotspots and mortality spots are along this roadway so we could identify how to mitigate the effects of this road and put in solutions for increasing connectivity and also again that human safety issue. And for this project we focused on black bear, white-tailed deer and elk specifically.
0: So, is there any way to describe the scope, either with the project you're working on now or uh, with other things that you've studied, other areas? Just how much wildlife we're talking about? You know, the, this area of concern is of concern for a reason, and it, and I imagine one of the main triggers was just all the mortality on the on the roadways. Just these things become apparent from. DOT statistics (laughs) in some uh, ways, right? And like when you're talking about a complex of solutions, you know, uh, that will show up for all of this, what kind of size and scope are we talking about in terms of just wildlife numbers that are going to uh, be protected and saved?
1: I I think overall, it's just hard to come up with a number here because that same point Wildlife are being killed on the roadway, but how is it really influencing the the populations that have been fragmented or isolated Mm. on a whole? So specific numbers, I don't have those, but I can say, you know, we have this whole 28 mile span of of roadway that we want to focus on. And we've got great Smoky Mountains National Park, you know, on one side, and one of the most ecologically diverse places in North America, in the world. And we have just as important large federal protected lands on the other side of this road. So the long-term effects I think are just greater than the, the numbers, but in the time, and this, this is why I don't have great numbers for you either, it's hard to get at how many animals are actually being killed along the roadway. One, they move, they don't stay there. And then the only information we tend to get as researchers are collision records from state troopers, from law enforcement. Sometimes maintenance records from the DOT, if they're moving carcasses. In our project, we did driving surveys just once a week. And so we we're probably missing a lot of things. But in the three years that we did driving surveys, it was almost 100 bears killed in that, in that time period. Wow. So it's hard to tell. And things fluctuate. We have high bear mortality years. You know, they're very tied to the acorn mast here. Um, so if we and and that's of course on a cycle, right? When those are produced, and so we do know and we see more mortality in the gorge when we have low acorn years because they're and this just signifies them moving to find resources because they're scarce here. When they're moving to find resources, they're going to interact with more roads and and we're going to see more bear mortality.
0: To get really precise uh, in podcast world, the words ginormous and holy cow, are also acceptable
1: numbers <laughs> and statistics. Oh, I appreciate that.
0: That's what I, I was getting. I really start to get the sense that um, there's a lot more movement than people might think. And for all these reasons, the acorn thing is really interesting. It's just one example. Uh, yeah, they have to move around. When there's a fire, I imagine, on one side or the other of a major thoroughfare, there's also another reason that you're going to see a lot of movement. What are some others that that... Just to give people an idea of like all the different reasons uh, wildlife does something it does not want to do, yeah, on a loud, busy highway or underneath, or you know, just experiencing that. I'm sure it's much more pleasant staying far away from that stuff for most wildlife.
1: I I would imagine, you know, I I often put myself in that situation of thinking, you know, animal behavior for wildlife biologists, you know, animal behavior is so difficult to dissect and understand. It also tends to be very individualized from even animals within a species. But I worked along, I've done a lot of wildlife work and I worked along this roadside. You know, we have wildlife cameras up, doing the surveys along the road. And the amount of noise generated from the roadway uh, just got my nervous system going the whole time. I couldn't figure out why I was so <laughs> nervous out there trying to concentrate to do things. And I just really imagine, like, these wildlife have got to think this is just one long, giant monster (laughs) with the amount of noise it generates. And what's difficult, too, out there is, you know, the roadway runs between Knoxville and Asheville, you know, that piece of roadway and the increased traffic and semi-traffic. And then they put Jersey barriers in the middle so that traffic doesn't, on either side, doesn't run across. But that often is a four to five foot concrete barrier in the middle of the roadway. Mm -hmm. So, so we're talking about a bit of a wall. Um, And so it, it was really, and how they, to create the road blew up the mountain and built the road in there. And what was once a pretty pristine area. Um, So the implications are just kind of huge when we talk about just even simple connectivity efforts out there um, to get wildlife from the Smokies and from the forest lands back and forth.
0: I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, video footage of bison and grizzlies and cubs uh, sort of um, relatively lackadaisically crossing roads in national parks and maybe have an idea that it's just that simple, you know, that they're that they can adapt and that it's not as stressful uh, as it might seem. But most people also haven't sat next to a highway for as long as you have with no motor running and not being inside a car, but fully exposed to all that stuff, that noise, that chaos. Uh, And so I'm glad you brought that up and described it because, uh, yeah, most people are just passing through and they don't understand that there's a big difference uh, for the wildlife. They really are solving a problem. Otherwise, they would not be there.
1: Exactly. Like they need to get to that other side. And and your question of, of why are, you know, the bear example with the acorns is great, but then sometimes I don't have an example. You know, in our research, we put GPS collars on, on 13 elk in the Smokies and in the area kind of the epicenter of elk activity in Great Smoky Mountain National Park is in the Cataloochee Valley, which is straight line distance only about six kilometers to the interstate. And we put 13 collars on elk and we track their movements. And while we only had one animal crossing the roadway in the two years we monitored, we had others that, you know, you see the barrier effect. They come up to the roadway, they circle around it, they use the area on one side, they never cross. This one female, we actually monitored for, for three years. She crossed the interstate 107 times. And every year it was the same pattern in the early kind of springtime. She'd leave the Catalucci Valley where the whole herd is. And she went and went on her own foray and she was finding a place to have her calf. The cow go off and, and when folks asked them, why over there? So she crossed the interstate at road grade. So at the road crossing, she had to navigate that. But she also used a bridge to move vehicles under under the interstate which is also where the Appalachian Trail crosses um it's it's right at the north carolina tennessee border and it's where the Appalachian Trail is and we had some synergy in tracking her with our gps collars but then we're monitoring these structures with cameras and you see her come back and and bring her calf back to the valley using that bridge and also crossing at road grade so 3 years in a row this animal left in the spring had her calf came back in early fall, bringing her calf with her. And I, I don't know how she's navigated to do this. I think in the first year we thought she should have had a calf and she didn't, but we were hadn't monitored her yet. And then in the three years we did, she seemed to successfully do that. And I don't know why she wanted to be over there, but my simple answer is space and and we all need and want that. Right.
0: Yeah. But well, we were just talking, uh, Uh, off mic (laughs) about that at the beginning here, how much we both enjoy space and people like us do. Um, One can only imagine when you're born in that kind of space, how much you cherish it. And it's the only thing you pretty much primarily know. Yes. Some of them seem braver than others. Some species do other you know, there are some extraordinarily sensitive species. What kind of work uh, have you been involved with or studied um, where the challenges are much, much greater to you sometimes can't just build it and they will come is is the case for some species, right?
1: right that is that is the case. And I think the focus there would be more on um, aquatic connectivity, um something that gets a lot less, you know focus. And if we imagine here in the mountains or where we are now where, Water is often being, needing to be conducted under roadways. Well, that also fragments uh, hydrological processes, but there's often step-ups. These structures, these box culverts, these metal culverts, they often don't have a natural bottom. They create step-ups. They don't have structure in them for fish species or aquatic species to be navigating or go, going through there. And so in some of our Pigeon River Gorge work, we've started talking to hydrologists and fish biologists um, who readily will tell you this is a huge, huge issue. When you disconnect watersheds to their main source through through creating roadways or, or other human development, there's a whole other diverse group of species in the aquatic realm that get little attention and and you know really, spatially, sometimes these are smaller areas where there should really be a focus. And so I, I think that's that's a focus of road ecology and connectivity that's you know trying to get the word out there. There's great projects being done. but I think to to your audience and folks out there, um aquatic connectivity is kind of huge,
0: yeah. and even here, uh, you and I have talked about the charismatic mega critters. and uh, for the most part until now and very glad that you brought that up because that usually does get glossed over even in our company. well, not when we're all just sitting around a campfire we geek out on newts and everything else
1: exactly. So
0: we're unusual, I think in that respect
1: mm-hmm. yeah, us too, but we we do latch on to these uh, animals where we have, you know multiple partnerships and 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 support and can kind of drum up support for, for projects like this and, and get a real commitment to, to trying to get mitigation on the ground, to, to increase wildlife connectivity.
0: What is the big vision? What do you see in the future? Um, let's go five or 10 years down the road. Um, what makes you really happy and hopeful about the work you're doing today and where it's leading?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of hope. Um, so we have completed our research study. Now, the research itself got got pretty large. So you know, you heard me mention we GPS collared elk. We also had cameras monitoring along the roadside to look at animal activity. We monitored these culverts and bridges that currently exist to see if they're being used, and we compiled all this wildlife vehicle collision information, and we really divided the road into segments and, you know, essentially ranked them to understand, you know, where these high activity areas are, where animal activity is high, all to come up with, we have 20 recommendations within the gorge based on our research findings. And what that really looks like is we want a linkage system from one side to the other, of the interstate, multiple opportunities for wildlife to cross under the roadway and so what that looks like is we want to retrofit some existing structures um so culverts that are too small or where we see a lot of vehicle collisions but there's an opportunity we want to retrofit those maybe they need to be larger less noisy um fencing to those we also want a few dedicated wildlife overpasses in the region that's that's kind of the big vision where we're seeing success and you know important relationships is with our department of transportation partners so early on in this research project they reached out and told us three five excuse me five of the bridges you're monitoring in the pigeon river gorge on the north carolina side are slated to be replaced so they're going to be putting in all new structures and uh at wildlands network we saw this as an opportunity and came up with how with the replacement of these structures that are already going to be there, we imagine they'll be there for another 60, 80 years, how could they incorporate wildlife passage into these structures? And so I'm really happy to say that first bridge that was slated for replacement, that we provided recommendations, a larger span so wildlife can have their own almost like Greenway area to move through and... Uh, Noise reduction, some fencing to guide to the structures and exclude from the roadway. Those have all been put in place in this first bridge replacement, which is the Harmon Den Bridge. And so that's just a huge win on our end. Um, you know, shout out to our North Carolina Department of Transportation partners who really took our recommendations. Through a little relationship building, and really thought we can do this and apply this. We want to see these benefits as well. You know, not only for the safety issue, but but we're all we're all bought in and and proud of the wildlife in our region. So it's it's been the community coming together on that that level. So that would be a, a big the big win. Now the research report itself it just came out in July, and it really pinpoints with a lot of detail uh, the areas. And, and how. And we're proud of that, and that's where we're drumming up legislative support um, and funding. and you know, so so there's this next phase of of trying to get these implemented. We We have such great research, you know, due to having great partnerships and support. Uh, and now we're moving forward in the phase of let's get the, some of these implemented.
0: It feels like there's a groundswell, and there has been for a while, and it's been building, and it sounds like maybe you're kind of able to capitalize on that. Having a receptive DOT and, you know, when in other areas, we are dealing with wildlife agencies that are not at all. At all receptive to working with us or hearing from us or anything, um, it's just refreshing to hear any department of anything be receptive and and want to team up on these things. Do you feel like there's a groundswell of support nationally for this?
1: Yeah, I, I really do. It's been a fun, it's been a fun part of research to be involved with, and I mean myself, you know, getting to do research and taking it and being able to apply it on the ground for positive conservation outcomes. But while we're seeing the success of these, you know, in the numbers I shared early on, I think the departments are too, and us being able to fill kind of a research gap. Folks are happy to provide resources, but maybe don't have the capacity. So I think being able to provide, you know, this information gap through our research, but I I think overall, I think, it goes back to the real issues here beyond the mortality along the roadway. It's, it's a larger connectivity. And I think if, you know, when wildlands started in the early 90s, uh, thinking large landscape connectivity, you know, those were crazy. It was crazy to think on that scale. But we see that that's been fully adopted as well. And I think that understanding how important habitat connectivity is, uh, everyone else is is, you know, accepting that and realizing these roads are such an issue. And and that human safety issue again, it kind of is this synergistic effect. And beyond just it seeming that way, you know, there's $350 million slated in the transportation bill for specific wildlife structures. So there's opportunities now in funding on this federal level. You know, I, I think that's that's what we're seeing too. Uh, is is a more focus on that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think you're right about, I think you're right about the groundswell. So, so it's definitely happening. I mean, even in, you know, I'm not on social media too much, but I'm even seeing it a lot there or people really seem to connect with it. Uh, I think the crossings themselves can be quite visionary, you know, or, or they really inspire folks to to think about a connected landscape to see see a bridge specific for wildlife and I think that has a lot of hope in it so I I think that's that's what the appeal that beyond that they they seem to be really effective they're kind of two birds with one stone you know there's there's a lot going on there so it's it's an exciting time and it was so exciting to have such uh, state agencies excited to to work with us and and they've been supportive so exciting stuff.
0: Stretches like the one you're working on that you did all this research on, um, there is a lot of those around the country that may probably aren't getting the kind of attention that, you know, this stretch has that still need a lot of supporters. So I would encourage everybody listening to find out about that in your area. And I would ask like to ask you, Liz, uh, for people, you know, first of all, uh, in your area, in that area, is there anything that people can do? that um, being geographically at hand might be helpful in support or projects, or how would they even find out some pick and shovel things that they could do in the future when anything as simple as a culvert needs some support or help from volunteers or uh, anything digital or anything political that people can do to help and support this work?
1: Yeah, I think first and foremost for the project I've talked about is, so we have a website, org and here you can you can get the latest so where we're going to need a lot of folks help is is sending letters contacting their legislative uh branches and offices to support work like this but also you know in the future i imagine there are going to be apps and services that help others identify or mark where they're seeing roadkill um it's hard for me in in this space to I'd love for everyone to get out, and especially with the the turtles and the um, amphibians and reptiles crossing the roadway, to drive slowly and move things. But that's that's also a danger to to humans. But I think legislative support, sharing, you know, that beyond the roadkill, the the effects of these roads on wildlife, um, and and those would be the general things. I think um, we do have a, a donation and support button for the Smoky Safe Passage. Pigeon River Gorge project on this website, uh, with some other, you know, anecdotes on how you can help. Um, but I think just having people like recognize the issue, uh, paying attention, and and if you're seeing areas of high concentration of wildlife in your backyard on your roads, you know, get a get a hold of someone regionally or locally or the wildlife agency. You know, we we know these places exist. And it's important to know, too, where the, the gaps in connectivity might be or protected areas in your region, too, just map-wise and understanding, you know, if you're in a large public area and where we know there's a lot of wildlife diversity because of the habitat resources and major roads are are impacting those wildlife. I think, you know, just trying to raise the red, uh, red flag on on the, the, the levels that you're comfortable with. Um, I think just knowing the real issue.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today because uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. And I feel like we got people caught up in a way that they're not getting in the, you know, generic news. And uh, you've been a great service to all of our listeners today. And thank you so, so much for all the work that you do and that you plan to continue to do uh, for the wild and for connectivity.
1: Thanks so much, Jack. I I appreciate the opportunity. I hope everyone uh, uh, enjoys this podcast.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org/pod. That's rewilding.org/p o d.